lovely betwixters. How are you? Thanks for joining me again. I am here with your fair dues warning. This is the warning that I give you to let you know, if you didn't know already, that this podcast is going to cover adult themes in an adult nature. Today we're talking about the history of gothic fiction. So we are inevitably talking about sexy things and torturous things and scary things and you just might not want to listen to that. You might just want to just get on eating your cornflakes and not have to deal with this nonsense. In which case, don't worry about it. I'll catch you next time. I am Dracula. Dracula. Frankenstein's monster. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. These are only some of the starring characters of the gothic canon. But where did they come from? Why are they so popular? And do any of them have anything in common with Edward Cullen? What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. (laughs) You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing a Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, dearie. Hello and welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society with me, Kate Lister. If you have read any gothic fiction or indeed watched any gothic films, you may have noticed certain traits, commonalities arising. I'll paint you a picture. There's normally a spooky castle, or perhaps a dilapidated manor somewhere, a creepy crypt. Always a forest, definitely a forest, at night filled with mist. And also filled with virginal women in white, running around and falling over so the monster can get her. Silly bint. Today I am joined by Abby Boucher and Daniel Jenkins-Smith to find out why these tropes were so important. When did gothic become popular? Why has it endured the way it has? How did gothic literature written by women differ from gothic literature written by men? And how, if at all, does romance fit into any of this? Let's do it. Hello to Abby Boucher and Daniel Jenkins-Smith for this particularly gothic edition of Betwixt the Sheets. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. Kind of, I wish that I had one of those sound effect i want like lightning crackling and kind of like demonic laughs in the background because today we are talking about gothic and there is no two better people i could be talking to about it so i suppose we'll start here what is gothic well it's a type of literature that's sort of all about vibes i think it is it's a vibe yes it's got a very long lineage it's still going strong today and it's one that we thought you'd be interested in because it's concerned with particularly intriguing sexual representations, we'll say. (laughs) Some dodgy gender dynamics, lots of fracturing off. So gothic is one of those things where it's like, everyone thinks they know what it is, and maybe they do, but when it actually comes to trying to define it, that's a bit harder. Like, what does a text have to do, or a film, or whatever, to be gothic? Like, are there kind of like, I don't know, like a tick box, a gothic tick? What does it have to have? What does it have to do to fall into that category? Isn't that part of it, the fact that, you know, you know it when you see it, so to speak, that it's not definable in 
in kind of fixed bureaucratic terms is what makes it partly its own vibes. thing. Vibes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Back to vibes. Yeah, you know what you say. Back to it. vibes. I can see what you mean by that. Yeah. Like gothic, like medieval gothic vibes. That's one I would have said. Yeah. So it when it this got going in the late 18th century they really started to get intrigued by the medieval period because it was sort of a reaction to the Enlightenment, which was very about the ancient world, the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks. But this is sort of in tandem with the rise of Romanticism. So instead of being very, we're rational, we're logical, we're sort of cool-headed, these people were sort of like, hey, maybe let's bring back a little dark energy. Okay. So like you Enlightenment thinkers are all kind of about like the classical big boys like rational sense Mm, common sense let's be sensible about this is there proof yes that kind of thing that's them and then as a reaction against that comes a whole new wave of people going the passions passions oh i like that yeah so you were talking about the tick box and there are some very common tropes especially in the high gothic that, you know, you can sort of tick box. So it's usually set historically. So even though it's being written in the late 18th century, usually set in the medieval period, thereabouts. British Gothic is usually set in Europe. It usually has a big commentary on Catholicism as being this sort of sinister and superstitious thing. There's a lot of, you know, debauched aristocrats, debauched monks. And that's about Catholicism? I never put those two together. Yeah, in part, it's a sort of way of saying, aren't you glad that we're Protestant now, Britain? We've gotten rid of this whole sort of superstitious (sighs) thing. It's middle class Protestants being like... Oh, I'm glad we're not like that, but I kind of want to watch. That's the, that's the, <laughs> yeah. that's the point. Yeah. It? Oh, I like that. There's a lot of voyeurism. Yeah. There's a lot of really weird sex stuff, often connected with death and violence. I mean, men just are like kidnapping women, like they're pies cooling on windowsills, basically. <laughs> it deals a lot with isolated settings. So it's not, the Gothic isn't so much scary as it evokes a sense of dread. Okay. Yeah, castles. That just popped into my head when you said that. Like, isolated castles on a hill somewhere. Uh, yes. Yeah, or All a right, spooky forest or a, you know, yeah, a yes. monastery where everyone's locked away. You get mm. a lot about young girls being locked up in convents where the nuns abuse them and it's all very, like, gross right. and titillating. Yeah. You're trapped by space and time, aren't you? You're kind yes. Of, you're stuck in a kind of old castle that you can't get out of, but also, you know... That is a metaphor for the past kind of weighing on the present in a sort of disturbing way. And in part, this was because there were scientific disciplines that were just getting started, like evolutionary biology, geology and archaeology, where people started to get really morbidly fascinated with concepts of time and how far back does humanity go and where do we come from? So it's all feeding into that. Well, that's the irony, isn't it? That it's through enlightenment thought that you end up with the sense that maybe we're not, you know, perfectable and maybe that's, maybe progress I, I, isn't going to happen. I love, I don't know why I just thought of this, but is it kind of like after the hippie movement of the 1960s, the punks came along? Is it kind yes. of like, it's almost like complete 180 of like, right, so we're going to do flower power. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, anarchy. Exactly, yeah. It's a bit degenerationist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I think I'm with you. Well, with the logic stuff, there are a couple of big authors at this point who were talking about the paradoxes of emotion. They were trying to say, okay, we've done the logic thing. What about the emotional register? We still have feelings. And sometimes they don't make sense. So Edmund Burke was discussing in, I think, 1757, the idea that you can have different sensations produced by one emotion. So sometimes when you're really happy, there's kind of this little kernel of sadness or wistfulness in that. Or there's an 
author named Anna Letitia Aiken Barbold, which is quite the mouthful. That's a good name. She talked about the paradox of the heart, about how reading terrible things kind of gives you this perverse pleasure. So she basically described why people go to horror films. It's like a safety valve. Ah. And they were trying to wrap their head around this sort of illogical engagement. Why do we want to read about these horrible things happening to these, you know, innocent people? God, Jeanette, that's so true. And we still do that, of course. Mm. We still, like, we're drawn to horror and gothic. And regularly I sit there watching true crime documentaries and they finish. And I'm like, why did I watch that? (laughs) That is just, like, the most awful thing that I've just sat there and... (laughs) Like, what's wrong with me? But yeah, that's interesting that you said that. It's a sort of a space to explore quite extreme emotions. And and they were sort of, this was being discussed in the 18th century, did you say? Yeah, yeah. One was 1757 and the other was, I think, 1775. So right at the sort of the turning point of the Enlightenment where they're like, okay, we've done this. Let's be a little irrational. Let's get weird with it. Let's get some vibes going. (laughs) So like... There's a lot going on there. What was like the first Gothic text and how on earth did that come about? Is there a first Gothic text or did it all just kind of happen organically? This sort of arose in countries all across Europe kind of at the same time. Everyone had just been fed up a little bit with the Enlightenment. So it it did kind of spring Mm. up in Germany. It was called the my German's terrible. It's good. The Shower Roman, or literally the Shutter novel. In France, it was called the Roman Noir. Yeah, the Black novel. It's just everything's better in French. Okay. I think the most widely considered first Gothic novel was actually British, and that's Horace Walpole's The Castle of Otranto, which is okay. bonkers. Yeah, tell us a bit about that. What happened? Well, in that? We actually have what a. What doesn't happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It opens with a wedding in which the groom is running to his, you know, he's running late to his wedding and uh, gets crushed to death by a helmet the size of a house that just magically falls out of the sky. And this is the start of a whole, it's an accursed family, the curse has come to fruition. And it just goes off the rails from there. That's the most normal thing that happens in the novel. And then his dad tries to marry the the bride. So So, crushed to death, a sort of a dodgy incest type of setup. There's a castle... Yep. Yeah, pretty much nailed it, yeah. <laughs> There's tunnels and things. A statue nosebleeds on somebody at one point. I mean, it's just, it's disgusting. It's bonkers. I love gothic literature because yeah. it's got plot enough for two and vibes enough for ten. Just my appetite for this is boundless. And was this a big hit? Huge. It is a completely bonkers piece of work and it was an enormous hit. Yeah, I think people were just ready to live in a world of superlatives where every guy is just an absolute sewer of a human being. Well, there's always a giant armoured hand around the next corner. Yeah, exactly. Who was it who wrote it? Horace Walpole, he was... Oh, carry on. No, I was going to say, and what was he like? Well, he was the son of the first Prime Minister. Well, that figures. That's an Etonian yeah, education. Yeah, yeah he, he was an Etonian, all right. Yeah, he was a very kind of uh, sort of delicate, rarefied, antiquarian. Oh, was he? And then just he let rip with this deranged thing. Well, exactly. It came like, to him in a dream. Saying, yeah, it was a dream. Yeah, like you were saying about geology and stuff. He was like interested in old architecture. And I think he just kind of read up on one castle too many and started having dreams about it. And, uh, you know, the rest was history. He he kind of invented this whole new turn. Oh, wow. So he wasn't like particularly gothic, evil horror of a human being. He was just a guy who had a dream. Yeah. <laughs> one man with a dream, yeah. One man uh, with think, a demented dream. I think he was a slightly, maybe you could call him a little bit decadent or something. He kind of, I think he set a certain precedent at his temperament. But yeah, he was more just a kind of enlightenment intellectual who just, yeah. Had a weird dream that really stuck with him, yeah. So how did the 
public react to this text? It was a huge hit, but like, do you have any kind of like like records of, you know, was it like The Exorcist where people were fainting after they'd read it, or was it like was it like scandalous, or was it like how was it received? The big thing was that with the first edition, he claimed that he just found the manuscript and translated it. He's <gasps> like, oh, this is not mine. I just was researching it. That's like the Blair Witch exactly, project. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's ah, oh, that's so clever. Based on a true story. <laughs> yes, but, found um, footage, isn't yeah. it? Yes. <laughs> but then. He later admitted that it was a, uh, a kind of experiment. And I think people were a bit like, you know, all the literary critics had been shown up and were a bit embarrassed that they'd fallen for it. And I think it, the kind of slight trashiness of the Gothic was born with that admission. So it was a bit of a hoax. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there were loads of literary hoaxes back then, weren't there? Everyone was doing them. <laughs> the scallywag. I, yeah. I didn't know that. All right, so that must have pissed a few people off. How did people read this text? Did people read it and go, well, that was lovely? Or was there like a big... Were people angry about it? Were they upset about it? Was it a mixture? I gotta be honest, I'm not really sure. I, from everything I know, it seemed almost to be a relief to the people who liked it. I'm not sure in terms of... It becomes a bit like an addiction though, doesn't it? Because you get like Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, where the uh, you know the protagonist reads too many gothic novels and starts thinking life is a gothic novel. So I suppose it became a sort of trope that young women in particular would just be reading gothic novel after gothic novel and it would become this kind of, uh, thinking you were living in this kind of world of horror. So I suppose that's the point, isn't it? That it became a craze. And it's kind of weird because it's so part of our culture now, gothic, gothic novels, gothic films, gothic fashion shows, you can see it everywhere. But to think that like there was a time when that didn't exist. Yeah. Like this was a world that hadn't seen that before when it was kind of launched on it. I mean, had the, presumably there'd been scary stories and ghost stories and things. Yeah, and we see hints of this coming, I mean, well back into the past. So, I mean, Shakespeare's Macbeth, mm. it uses a lot of, oh, yeah. you can almost retroactively classify that as kind of a gothic text, but that, that's an outlier. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Samuel Richardson's Pamela, but that They're you can... kind of converging to that point. You can they? see it coming. So there's a scene, it's, you know, a young servant girl who's being sexually harassed by her master and he, there's lots of terrifying chase sequences down the hall and, you know, as he's grabbing at her and things and that's going to become really prevalent in about seven years. Yeah, that motif of the young woman normally in white running through mm -hmm. a forest, falling over, running away from a monster, that's gothic vibes, isn't it? Very much. Yeah, it's the girl going into the basement going, hello? Mm -hmm. You know, we still see that today in every slasher flick. I mean, that was, yeah, straight out of the 18th century. I mean, I think the point is that there was loads of kind of violent and disturbing literature before the gothic, but it when it becomes an explicit reaction to enlightenment mm. rationalism that it it comes into its own it becomes fashionable i suppose yeah yeah or it becomes a kind of historical agenda type thing like a movement all of its own so we've got this the castle of otranto and then that's a hoax it's not a hoax but then that's kind of set in motion not quite a template but this is what people mm -hmm. want that kind of juddery spooky feeling and they want to be scared because that's tying into your emotions how can we fit passions as you said. Tell me about the sexy bit. Where did that come from? And like, because it's, you can't read Gothic and not have it there somewhere. It's bubbling away beneath the surface. And it's usually, as you said, some poor virginal girl's been trapped somewhere. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a really big theme. Content warning out that if you decide to read We these... absolutely will. They will be warned. <laughs> yeah, just if you decide to read these books... Be well warned that as entertaining as they are, they're also very sexually disturbing, especially these high gothic. They get a lot more complicated as we sort of mm. 
move through the centuries. The but monk so, is the big one, isn't it? Well, yeah, the next big one. So the Castle of Otranto percolated for a little while, and I'm sure there were plenty of knockoffs and things, but the next big one was in, oh, let me think, it's 1796, I think. So we're 40 years later. And that's with mm. <laughs> Matthew Lewis is the monk. And Matthew Lewis is just one of the most committed perverts I think I've ever read. And he was an MP, right? <laughs> and so. he became an MP. He got yeah, so famous yeah. from this that it helped him land a seat in parliament he wrote it really quickly i think it was in 10 weeks or something he was only 19 it kind of shows so this is like the fevered imagination of a 19 year old etonian mp in training yes he's in the young tories he doesn't know what to do he writes this this is why we shouldn't let politicians write books it just doesn't end well but tell me about this book so what has he written about God, can you imagine like something that you wrote at 19 actually ending up on the classic oh, shelves and people still reading it? Oh, my God. Right, so well, what happens in the imaginings of this 19-year-old? Well, it's about a monk who just cannot be corrupted. He's so virtuous. And then he immediately gets tempted by Satan, who comes to him in the form of this sexy witch named Matilda, who seduces him. The dream. No. And, <laughs> and he spends the book with Matilda, his lover's help, trying to seduce this other young girl, Antonia, who I believe is only about 15 and turns out to be his sister. Spoilers. But it's it's very voyeuristic. So we get this mm. absolutely absurd scene where Matilda gives him basically the Beauty and the Beast magic mirror where he can spy okay. on Antonia and he watches her getting ready to take a bath. And of course, she doesn't know she's being watched. And as she gets undressed, a bird flies through the window and starts nuzzling at her boobs. And she's like, oh, no, you know, it's just truly astonishing. This is like the original men writing women mm. trope, isn't it? Is that because that's what we do? We get into the bath with blue tits <laughs> flying <laughs> around us. Who has not, right? Absolutely. Okay. All right. So we've got a slightly incestuous, weird, definitely she's far too young. This is horrible. And he's a monk. So there's a lot going on here already. Yeah. And so he sort of helped redefine the playbook in terms of gender. And one of the things that he introduced was the idea of voyeurism and especially issues of consent in that it's really gross because a lot of his issues Mm. of titillation, a lot of the things that he posits are sexy are sort of reliant on the fact that a woman does not want to consent to this. So there's a whole thing where Antonia goes to church and does not want to take her veil off and men sort of bully her into it because they suspect she's hot. And it's kind of like, ooh, yeah, you know, and I'm sitting here as a woman going, leave her alone. Mm. Please don't make her disrobe in church. This is that's on it's on page one, practically. But then we sort of get to women writing back. So in the high Gothic, there was a quite a big divide critically where women authors started taking this up. And this is where I think things get a lot more interesting because... What is high Gothic? Just for anyone who's who's unsure, what's the difference between high Gothic and kind of like low Gothic? (laughs) (laughs) So high Gothic is what we call this early period where it's starting to be defined, where it sort of bursts and onto the, first the scene. The flowering of the genre. And it goes up till probably Frankenstein. That's probably the last high Gothic text before it just fractures off into a million subgenres. So like 1760s to 1820s, I suppose? Yeah. We're talking. Okay, okay, nice, nice. Tell me about women writing Gothic. How long was it before a woman said, oh, you want Gothic, I'll show you Gothic? Well, I'm sure there were probably women writing in response to Walpole back in the day, but it's in this 1790s period that women were like, okay, let's get in on the action, especially after Matthew Lewis. So you had Anne Radcliffe and, and people like that, Mary Shelley eventually you know, writing these things. And what's really fascinating there is 
that they write about the same stuff. So they're taking this playbook, but they're much more sensitive to it. So these books are a lot more readable today because it's less about, ooh, it's sexy because she's not consenting. And it's more, how Mm. does it feel as a woman to have this system of oppression and to have these things happen to you? And there was a critic I read once, I wish I could remember who wrote this, who even talked about how it was a chance for women to sort of explore their own sexuality without being lambasted for it. So it's almost, they pause it like, oh no, it happened to her, you can't blame her. Mm. So it very oh. complex, weird emotions. That kind of complexity is all part of the Gothic, isn't it? That it, it feels prurient, but also liberatory at the same time. Yes. It's kind of, it's always going for that sort of duality, isn't it? And there was like a whole big sort of thing in the culture at the time, and I guess we still have echoes of it today, about how when women say no, they really mean yes. And so they're kind of like, and rape was very fetishized at the time, wasn't it? So it's not really surprising to see it creeping into the literature. And I think that these are actually sort of tropes and narratives we're still trying to unpick now, really, aren't they? Oh, this had a very long shelf life. Mm. We're still undoing this today. Right? That's the problem with the gothic, isn't it? That you can explore sexuality, but also it has all these like hangovers, uh, so to speak, from kind of less enlightened days. It's interesting that it goes from sort of the, the monk, which is just sort of like incest, underage, voyeuristic, quite deranged <laughs> sexual assault. That's not the tagline that they used on it. It should be. And there's be. a bird there. <laughs> and, there's, and a bird, and a bird, obviously. That's kind of, then that's used for some women writers to explore their own sexuality. That's a really interesting shift, I think. There's a critical divide nowadays between the male high gothic, which is basically just generically packaged abuse, and then the female high gothic, which is... <laughs> A lot more sensitive, or at least more thoughtful, it seems, at least in my opinion. Okay, and who do we recognise as being one of the first female gothic authors, and what were they writing Probably Anne Radcliffe, Mm. who, did she do... The Mysteries of Udolpho. The Mysteries of Udolpho. And then, of course, like, you've got, I suppose, Mary Shelley. Yes. With Frankenstein. And who else was there? Who else had women? Jane Austen, I suppose, we could throw in there. Absolutely, yeah. So then it starts getting, maybe not parodied, but bits of it are being used. The Brontes. The Brontes, of course. Absolutely. You can't have a mad woman locked in an attic and not have that be <laughs> be gothic. <laughs> and then when we get into sensation fiction in the 1860s, they're using little snippets of that all the time. There's often a scene of, you know, some violent storm and the lightning strikes and, you know, somebody's creeping around a house where they shouldn't be or something like that. I love that. Uh, what is sensation fiction, just for anyone listening? What is that? Well, that's actually, it's made a huge resurgence nowadays. So it's basically the 1860s version of things like Gone Girl or Girl on the Train or Big Little Lies. It's the domestic thriller Ah. and that it got started in the Victorian era almost perfectly reformed today. It hasn't really changed at all. It hasn't changed. I'll be back with Abby and Daniel after this short break. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how Codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit 
a podcast by History Hit. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is sponsored by Factor. I don't know about you, but one thing that bugs me is having to plan and cook healthy-ish delicious meals every single day. Frankly, I think it's time that could be better spent. You might be saying, hey, Kate, what's the solution? Well, luckily for you and me, Factor has made it super easy to eat quickly and deliciously. Their fresh, chef-created, dietitian approved meals are ready to eat in just two minutes. With over 35 meals to choose from each week, you can tailor your orders to fit your dietary needs and your schedule, even pausing and rescheduling deliveries if you need to. These are restaurant-quality meals that require no prep, make no mess, and are delivered right to your door. With Factor, you can take the stress out of healthy living. Head to factormeals.com slash betwixt50 and use the code betwixt50 to get 50% off. That's code betwixt50 at factormeals.com slash betwixt50 to get 50% off. concern wasn't there like and it started with the gothic and it maybe it's still with us in some form that these texts that this it would corrupt people's minds especially women's minds Mm -hmm. you see that cropping up again and again don't you yeah i know there were a lot of really not just women's minds but their bodies as well there was a lot of now seemingly ridiculous medical texts going do not let your wives and children read this they will turn into criminals they will turn into lunatics it will send them you know to an early grave their nerves and yeah the medical discourse around this is pretty hilarious have we got any numbers on this were they right were there a lot more criminals <laughs> after were. these books came out <laughs> I think I have seen, I don't know if it was like one of those internet jokes that you seemed doing the time, but I'm sure that I saw one of those, this is an admission list for some 18th century asylum and novel reading was on there. I there mean, it go. was it was yeah. a real concern, wasn't it? That it would make you go deranged. Yes, the idea that evokes a certain amount of sensation in you and we don't understand what that means physiologically. And you're thinking, well, you've had plays, you've had poetry that evokes this, but apparently this new form is just the giddy limit. Well, I suppose like Don Quixote and the female Quixote, people have always worried about the effects that yes. art have on, you know. And they still do. I mean, occasionally something crops up like a film is going to influence people or um, computer games yeah. that, that is going to turn people really violent. Or, or heavy metal is the big Heavy one. metal yeah. music, yeah, of course. Mm. So we still have this kind of leftover legacy of people are going to be exposed to something and then it's going to warp them completely. 
I feel yeah. like the, the thing about the Gothic, though, is it's like, if it didn't have that edge, if it didn't have that mystique, it wouldn't be as appealing that you kind of think, oh, am I being changed by reading this? I think, you know what I mean? There's a kind of a self-prurient type thing, if you know what I mean. That, I want to be changed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or that, you know, ooh, yeah, no, is being exposed to this somehow kind of warping me? I mean, it's sexy in that it's forbidden and it's depicting a lot yeah. of things that are forbidden. So I can understand why it became such a cultural phenomenon and it's never gone away. No, and I suppose it as well, it's kind of like, like, I remember speaking to a Jane Austen scholar once and um, we were talking about the accusation that her books are really boring, <laughs> which is, and, and loads of people listen to that going, going, how dare you? Mm. But if you speak to any undergraduate students, they might disagree with that one. The moment, yeah, it's quite boring. And she actually made the point of like, it's not that it's boring, it's that what she is depicting is the world of most women at the time, which was actually quite small. Mm. Their world was mm-hmm. quite small because like, you know, you can't go out and party it up or you can, but then you'd be a fallen woman. Like their entire kind of existence was set up to get a husband and these really quite tedious social interactions of like, yes, Mrs. Bennett will take a turn around the room and that kind of stuff. So you can sort of see then, and then you put a gothic novel into the hands of people whose lives are quite, I don't want to say small, but you know what I mean? It's like this kind of like, my God, there are castles and monks and it's sexy and naughty. And I can definitely see that appeal. Yeah. I mean, the kettle has come to a boil really with all of this, especially in the enlightenment period where, you know, you're just, you're fed up. I want to feel something. I want to go a bit mad with it. Yeah, I mean, maybe they're right. Maybe people did want to, not that they went mad, but people did want to feel scared and, you know, aroused. And maybe there was something in that. <laughs> so how do you think Gothic has changed? So we've got the kind of like the early high Gothic, as you said, in the 18th century with your rapey monks and weird bird baths and that kind <laughs> of stuff. <laughs> and then women start getting in on the act. By the time you've got to the 19th century, how's like the idea of, sort of Gothic and horror, how has it evolved? How has it changed? What is Gothic Victorian Gothic look like? Well, we get a really huge change in that we developed the urban Gothic, which is something that Dickens was pretty big in helping to codify. And that takes it away from the European continent. It takes it away from the Catholics and the, you know, the historical period. And it puts it in the modern city where, okay, all of this stuff, but it's in your backyard. So this is a bit of a Gothic image, but they kind of Victorian authors kind of dismembered the Gothic, didn't they, and kind of took different elements of it and compiled it with, you know, yeah, like you were saying about wow. sensation fiction, different social kind of phenomena or incorporating it in new contexts. So it's, it's not the pure genre it once was, but it has these kind of same forms and same effects. So what do you think the Victorians found so fascinating about it? It sort of arose in the 18th century in part as a reaction against Enlightenment philosophy, which was about rationale, sensible, let's not get carried away now, lads, that... Mm. What was the Victorians in like the age of the Industrial Revolution? Because arguably they had more technological progress than, well, maybe not our own time, but like the advances that they were making. And they're still returning to this kind of old worldy, superstitious, gothic genre. I suppose that's the paradox though, isn't it? That in the same way that the Enlightenment bred the French Revolution and terror, so too did it create this kind of incredible industrial change and pollution and immiseration and you know all of that kind of stuff and you know the bounds of science are ever expanding and you don't know what they're going to come up with yet those you know the long-haired scientist guys and so the point is is it's kind of 
speaking to that sense of ambivalence you might feel about technological progress or, you know, historical change. Yeah, it's that one thread that always goes through the Gothic, which is the sense of dread. And so for every step forward, you sort of wonder, but what are we going to uncover with this? Mm. This is why Mm. in the, what is it, in the 1880s, when they were laying the transatlantic cable, they were really worried that they were going to discover mermaids. And there was so much anxiety (laughs) that that led to, I'm not even kidding, a huge spate of mermaid erotica and straight up porn because people were like, I got to take these bad feelings and do something with them. Wow. Did they find any? Did they find any? Not to my knowledge, but it didn't stop them from looking. You won't find a mermaid that doesn't want to be found, quite frankly. (laughs) So it's perhaps like sort of the continuation is, again, it's a reaction against... And maybe we still do that a bit, you know, like there's that line in Jurassic Park, isn't there, which I'm going to misquote, but it's like just because science can doesn't mean it should. Mm. That kind of things. That still underpins a lot of our gothic horror today, fear of what science and technology can do. Yeah. And in terms of the empire stuff, we also get imperial gothic where, you know, as Britain expands further outward, then all of a sudden it takes, you know, yeah, but how is your white British masculinity going to fare when you're alone (laughs) in a foreign land with these strange gods? And, you know, so it's obviously that's a usually a fairly racist subgenre of this. Kipling got in on that real hard. But you can see where that came from. It's again that sort of, but we have all the power. But do we? Mm. But do we? We can't not talk about Dracula. And this seems like the perfect chance to to bring him in because he ticks a lot of these boxes, Mm -hmm. doesn't he? So he is a foreigner from Transylvania. And again, it's urban because he turns up in, in Whitby for reasons. And then in London, he is a sexual predator. He... And he's mysterious, so he ticks all of these boxes, Mm -hmm. doesn't he? Yeah, a reverse invasion narrative. We have that height of empire. Oh, no, but what if they come here and they're mystical and stronger? And can we use, you know, all of our modern skills? You know, we know how to type and use, you know, a dictaphone and things like that. And that our modern bureaucracy will beat Dracula. That is the big thing, isn't it? That technology is also a a big aspect of Dracula and it kind of has a sort of... You know, because he's like hiring lawyers to buy houses and stuff. I know lawyers aren't really a technology, but the kind of modern infrastructure. So there's a kind of like, it can go both ways. At the time, like that's something that I'm, whenever my students study Dracula, I'm forever saying to them is like, I know this stuff sounds really old now, but you have to like imagine it at the time, the stuff he's talking about is absolutely cutting edge. Like there's a blood transfusion at one yeah. point. Yeah. They use what they call stenographers or like, like a recording device. And I think Mina's training to be a teacher. And it's like, like this is, absolute cutting edge and there's a psychiatrist so like in modern parlance i can't even think what that would be the equivalent to but there'd definitely be ipads in it (laughs) if you set in silicon valley or something wouldn't it yes yes well we have a sort of modern version of that which i think aligns maybe not perfectly but it deals with i think the best gothic text i've seen in recent years is ex machina which deals with all of these technology and sexual dynamics masculinity that rural versus technological urbane landscape the voyeurism is there everyone's being watched all the time so you can see again like this is a lot of these tropes are straight out of the 18th century yep still with us still exerting an influence Mm -hmm. so why are we so fascinated with vampires because we still are aren't we we still and dracula wasn't the first one actually we should say that i mean it was a huge blockbuster but it wasn't the first vampire text was it yeah vampire texts weren't even that big in britain until dracula you lot are more about ghosts really vampires were much more a continental myth and they, they had had a few other stories there's polidori's the vampire there was sheridan Le Fanu's carmilla and things a, a handful more 
but they did not have the same resonance. And I think mm. it's because Dracula as a figure, the way this text is written, he's such a mutable figure. So we reinvent Dracula. There's so much going on there. We reinvent him every generation for what we need. So in the 1930s with Bela Lugosi, he presents as very dignified European menace. We're right in the middle of two world wars. In the 50s with the hammer horror of Christopher Lee ones, he presents as sort of masculinity and sexual anxiety where he's, the women in that are really into being bitten by Dracula in a way I'm not sure we saw before or since. <laughs> in the 70s, you've got a whole spate of black exploitation. You have Blackula. In the 90s, we had Dracula 2000. We had Interview with the Vampire and mm. Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. And all of those deal with issues of time. We're right near the millennium. Wow. So we're constantly reinventing Dracula just because he's sort of almost a vague enough a character where we can put whatever we need on him. And vampires are sexy, aren't they? I mean, I'm going to ask you why the hell they're sexy, but it's just, that's always been a part of it. But when you actually break that down, like, why is are they sexy? Because they're effectively just giant parasites. That's, and when you say that, that's not sexy. If you, like, when Lucy Westmer in Dracula gets basically seduced and then chagged to death by Dracula, it's all just kind of like, oh, but it's so sexy. And she becomes really eroticized, mm -hmm. doesn't she? And she becomes quite horny. It wouldn't be so horny if they said you have a parasite. <laughs> that That's not sexy. Depends what you're so, into, Kate. <laughs> that's true. I don't want to yuck anyone's yum. There'll be people out there just going, actually, I quite like my parasite. But what is it about the drac the vampire? not just Dracula, the vampire that sort of is surrounds with this eroticism, do you think? I think... Being bitten isn't sexy. If someone wants to bite you, that's not hot, actually. I think it's the combination of these intense animalistic appetites with extreme restraint. So vampires have rules and a sort of mystique. They have a code, you know, mm. they can't come into your house unless you invite them. They have, you know, things that ward them off. But it's that tension between there. I mean... Essentially, they do the same things as werewolves, don't they? But very few people find the werewolf erotic. Mm. You know, sorry to all the Jacob fans out there. Yeah, sorry, but it's the vampires are just sexier. Sorry. But it's, it's that tension of the animal, but incredibly cultured, sophisticated, mm. advanced. I like that. Okay. There's a class thing, I think. And there's a class element. Let's not forget that. Yeah. So, like, it's power, it's animalistic that I think that we are attracted to power as well, aren't we? Like, And it's the idea that the vampire could hypnotise you and make you do things. That's got quite... Maybe that I'm just giving away too much about myself. <laughs> There's part of it, though, it's a kind of repressed thing, isn't it? It's like, that's what gothic literature is always about in general, but it's like, oh, I would never do this, but, you know, mm, but, you know, I'm kind of slightly curious. And I think, yeah, the vampire is carte blanche to do that, right? Because, well, oh, it, the vampire just kind of hypnotised me. Hypnotised me and made me do all these terrible yeah. things, Your Honour. It goes back to that female high gothic of... Well, I, it's not my fault because I was hypnotised. Oh, I like that. And I suppose as well, of course, the fact that there's the vampire bite, which again, a bite isn't sexy, but the way it's done in these films and texts, it is quite sexy. Like, they have to get very close. There's a reason why they bite on the neck, isn't mm -hmm. there? Like, and that in itself is quite an erotic act, I suppose. And it's the most thinly veiled metaphor for fluid exchange and, yes, you know, the melding of bodies and things like that. Of course, there is that scene, isn't there, in Dracula, and I show this to my students all the time, of when Dracula is turning this character of 
Mina into a vampire and he kind of he opens a vein in his chest and he like he pushes her head to it and I always say it this I probably shouldn't but I say it to the students think blowjob and then when you read mm-hmm. that passage again like it's absolutely he's talking about he's holding her head down mm-hmm. and she's sucking and he's moaning in ecstasy and it's just like steady on Bram bloody hell <laughs> and there's a sort of perverted parent kink there in that it's sort of a breastfeeding metaphor as well in that he creates these children who are also his bride and it's just it's oh it's so messed up are we saying dracula's a daddy <laughs> he's gone full daddy he's yes full daddy. we'll get stanley oh, tucci no. on the phone this is the dracula for this generation we should say as well because like, there are more women vampires in dracula than there are men vampires and they are all horny minxes so it's not just that like you become damned you become really hot as well right yeah they even sort of spoof that a little bit in twilight where are we now with vampire and gothic fiction do you think because it's still with us it's we can't seem to let it go it turns up all the time we're still fascinated by it and i think that like the kind of the obsession with a mythologized medieval past is still Mm -hmm. i think it's enjoying it's been enjoying a new resurgence ever since game of thrones started which kind of does the same thing which is like yeah it's very violent it's very rapey but it's medieval so that's just what they did Mm. and it's not but where are we today with the gothic do you think i think the gothic lately has been incredibly thoughtful and it always deals with issues of structural power and so it's being deployed in quite intriguing ways nowadays so another great gothic film is get out where i haven't seen that it's sort of the suburban gothic so we've had urban gothic we've had you know imperial gothic we've had southern gothic you know where you know, I declare we never recovered from the war and we have all of our secrets in the attic sort of thing. But now we're getting into suburban life. Okay. So that deals very much with issues of race and vision. Again, it's very sort of voyeuristic in that sort of way. Conformity. It's about conformity a lot in modern society. So the Stepford Wives is another good example. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Do you think that's gothic, Stepford Wives? I've never thought of it like that. The book certainly is in that uh, okay. it's this isolated community and women are getting picked off one by one. That's again a bit like with those Victorian novels that sort of borrow. It's the kind of gothic is sort of disseminated throughout the culture, even if we don't have like kind of pure exemplars of the. Uh, yeah, the the pure gothic I think has probably faded, but it's death. it's just completely being recycled by. It keeps returning anyway, doesn't it? That's the point of the gothic. It's a revenant. <laughs> How about something like Fifty Shades of Grey? Would you say that that has had gothic influences? Just because that is a very rich, wealthy man who has a lot of power, who seduces a virgin, a young virgin, Anastasia, and then keeps her in his red room. I've heard. I've never read it, obviously. (laughs) I mean, that's... And it's a Twilight fanfic. I think that's certainly shuffled into the deck of the gothic, even if only as a joker. It's certainly playing with tropes of the gothic. Again, it all depends on the vibes. Does it vibe as gothic? And that's a hard thing. You know it when you see it. I've never thought of it like that before, but now I just said it. I think it's got that kind of appeal because I'm forever interested in why that text became the absolute cultural juggernaut mm-hmm. that it did and I don't really buy into people that kind of want to tear it down and say it was badly written and blah 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 we can do that all day long but it's more like what button did that push yes in the same way that the castle of Otranto pushed something Dracula pushed something that made people just go I don't know what that is but I want it 
And it, like, what was it? I think there's a social element, right? That you kind of, it's the fantasy of being chosen by this kind of elite. Because a vampire is like a, ultimately an aristocrat, right? And it's like... He's a dumb. Yeah, exactly. You're the one they want. You know, you've got the unpaid internship. Look at you. You know, that's, I think that's the kind of, we're living in another cultural moment, uh, or maybe not a cultural moment, a social moment of inequality. And people kind of slightly fetishize that maybe. Well, and I think also Twilight, I don't actually think that is a gothic text. It's a text about vampires, but it just doesn't hit the same notes. Oh, so you're going to start a fight now with people listening. But make your case, Abby. Why isn't Twilight a gothic text? I think, again, it just doesn't quite hit some of the same notes. It's one of those things, and I'm happy to be disagreed with here, but it's kind of just about how you feel with it. It doesn't evoke that sense of dread. I think it focuses too much on the romance and the introspection and the anxiety and things like that, but it doesn't fill you with dread in the same way. And you can't have sparkly vampires. You can't have glittery <laughs> vampires and call it gothic. You just I know that there aren't hard and fast rules with this, but I'm going to make that one of them. And I'm sure there are scenes in there that would probably qualify, but as a whole. And I think that's why Fifty Shades might have also taken it in a new direction because that mm. injects a little bit more of the gothic as you're saying so it just it takes twilight and just goes slightly on a fork in the road it's not so much about entrapment is it i think like twilight's there's not enough entrapment it's more that their relationship could collapse outward rather than them being trapped in this kind of awful situation whereas 50 shades of gray is obviously very much about certain kinds of constraint so i think that's the gothic element i like it and what do you make of the twilight vampires and monsters because i loved what you said there about like the figure of dracula can be retold for any time what do you think that twilight tells us about our own time if like you were to fast forward 200 years in the future and people scholars are looking at twilight to try and work out what the hell we were thinking about like what is it about those vampires because they glitter they can go out in the sun he, why is he going to high school i never yeah. quite understood that he's hundreds of years old like why <laughs> shit it matters he never passed his GCSE. yeah he just needs to keep retaking him that's all it is <laughs> It's just been held back endlessly yeah, for hundreds yeah. Imagine of years. that. Yeah. <laughs> I think the reason why this resonated is if we're talking about why vampires are sexy and it's those animal mm. appetites with restraint, Edward Cullen has the most restraint of any vampire because he's written from a very, I believe, Mormon bent. I didn't know that. Okay. I think the author is, yeah, is, is Mormon. Christian. So there's a, a very heavy Christian tone. And I think that accentuates, especially when you add in the werewolf element, which are much more like greased up shirtless jailbait sort of situation mixed and then you yes. have Same edward course. on the other side who's sort of hilariously neurotic and pasty i, I think just it, we're accentuating that tension there of but look how restrained he loves her so much yeah there's a real emphasis on the romance in it isn't yeah. there but that culture of abstinence and sort of sexual anxiety is obviously still very much present in america now so yes. i suppose maybe mm. you could say that twilight's sort of a, a harbinger of you know, kind of contemporary issues. A, so, a sexually restrained vampire. I just, like, how did that become a, a massive cultural smash? Well, yeah, who knows? But, you know, we're, we're, paying, we're paying the dividends now, aren't we? We are. So what do you think that the future is for Gothic then? Because I'm going to have to draw this to a close, although I could keep talking to you for forever. Where do you think we're going to go with this now? Did you read that interview with them um, that recently? You remember that guy that recently got sacked from Google who had, had said a computer had come alive and they yes. had this kind of very disturbing conversation about sort of what it meant to be turned off and things. I've missed all of that. That, wow. I'm thinking AI. That read like a sort of, had a sort of slightly unnerving, maybe not full on gothic, but it had a kind of creepiness, the, the, the transcript mm-hmm. of their conversation. So I'm wondering if AI might be a Oh, for potential. sure. For sure. I think it's... The, I it's, mean, we're already on it really, aren't we? And we've been doing this sort of technological gothic 
already. We've been doing that since the mm. you know 19th century. But I think, again, to bring up things like ex machina, what does that mean in terms of gender as well? Because we have the whole tension of the sex bot thing. Again, to bring up the Stepford Wives, you know, these ideas are percolating, and I think we're in a, for another cycle of that. I think, I mean, that's endlessly explorable, yeah. isn't it? How technology can fuck us up and vice versa. <laughs> I think, do you think you could ever get, like, obviously, you know, in the wake of Me Too and various ways of feminism and what we're calling out this stuff, and we can now look at most of the Gothic, not even the stuff from the 18th century, but, like, right the way up and kind of go, that is a bit, actually, mm, I'm not quite so sure about that. But could you ever have, like, a sexually liberated equal feminist gothic or does it always need to have that power dynamic in it somewhere for it to be gothic because dracula wouldn't have worked at all would it if he'd found lucy and then lucy gone actually i don't consent to this and he'd gone well and i respect your wishes <laughs> and if he'd gone and like because that's sort of central to it isn't it is that it's not sexually egalitarian it is quite predatory do you think we could take that out and still have gothic or would it be crap gothic i don't know i feel like it's by definition a reactionary art form right because it is about looking back mm. and it's about that the idea of the past coming to take over your present and indeed like about sort of sexual predation and, and like any other kind of predation i suppose the point is more that it's a space in which that can be explored without necessarily encouraging it the problem is is when it seems to be encouraging it right so but i think yeah it is it is reactionary for better and worse it has so much to do with time and they're always talking about the sins of the father being revisited so i think especially as we go forward and understand a lot more about systematic inequalities that's just going to come to the fore all the more so it's, it might give it more to explore and play with. Yes. Yeah, it could be a good thing. It could be a, yeah, a, a space to explore these kind of inequalities thing. or it could be a bad thing and a place to fetishise them. And final question. Favourite gothic film for both of you? Or text? Uh, oh, God, you're putting me on the spot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> quick, you have a, you have a crib sheet Yeah, I've got a crib sheet right here. I'm going to pick Marx's Capital, which Francis Ween Ooh. says is a kind of, you know, a tale of humankind being enslaved by its own creations, the value form. So there's my uh, slightly perverse response to a question given in good faith. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I'm going to go with Hitchcock's Rebecca. Ooh, okay. Okay, why that choice? The way the camera works to sort of magnify the absent space, it follows the invisible, you know, long dead Rebecca, where she would have been. And it's just such a great way of manifesting a ghost right in front of us without showing anything. I think it's tremendous. Thank you so much for joining me today, Abby and Daniel. And if people want to learn more about the Gothic, if they want to find out more about you, where can they do that? We actually have a podcast that recaps classic literature in an irreverent fashion. It's called Save Me From My Shelf. And we're right around this time releasing two episodes on Gothic text. So if you have any interest, please check us out. We are on Twitter at SMFMS underscore podcast. And we're on Instagram and TikTok at Save Me From My Shelf. And please do, because it's absolutely fabulous for all Gothic and non-Gothic lovers alike. Thank you so (laughs) much for talking to me today. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening and thank you so much, Abby and Daniel, for joining me. And if you like what you've heard, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Join me again Betwixt the Sheets, the History of Sex Scandal in Society, a podcast by History Hit. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. 
please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.